This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman filling in for Tom this week. There's less than two weeks left in this year's open season. Now is the time to make healthcare enrollment changes in the Federal Employees Health Benefits or FEHB program for 2024. Tom Temin and I recently spoke with Kevin Moss, a director at Consumers Checkbook, about what federal retirees should keep in mind this year. So two big things. One, higher premiums, okay, 7.7% for FEHB, but also you're going to see a Part B premium increase too. It's only about 6%, so it's about a $10 price hike per month. It's now uh, the Part B standard premium, $174.70 a month. The other huge thing, though, is is Medicare Part D. Federal employees haven't had to worry much about D is part, for debt. D is for drugs in this case, Tom. <laughs> and the D for drugs is, you know, federal employees really haven't had to worry much about Part D in the past because prescription drug coverage in the FEHB plans has been as good as what you could get in a Medicare Part D plan, and didn't require you to go out to Medicare Part D and pay an extra premium in order to receive it. But in 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act is passed. In it are really important reforms that improve uh, Medicare Part D. This year, insulin capped at $35 a month. Next year, 2024, no enrollee cost share over the catastrophic phase. And uh, Part D premiums can't rise more than 6%. And then the big one that's hitting in 2025, $2,000 out-of-pocket spending cap. You no longer will be charged more than $2,000 for any out-of-pocket prescription drug costs out of a Part D plan. OPM saw these changes and in the spring signaled to the plans that they would like to see the plans um, be able to provide more Medicare Part D options in their FEHB plans and, importantly, allow for the first time a new plan type, and that is called a PDP plan or a prescription drug plan. This has never been offered before in FEHB. Next year, there are 17 FEHB plans that will have a PDP plan. All of them will auto-enroll you if you're in that FEHB plan and you have Medicare Part A or Parts A and B, there's one difference, and that is the Blue Cross plans. You must have both A and B. They will not auto-enroll you in Medicare Part A. The plans already, probably by the time you listen to this episode, have sent out a notice to you if you're impacted. And just a basic question. This covers drugs that are out there, that are approved by the FDA, that are in the Medicare system. I mean, because once in a while you hear about some new drug that comes out for an exotic disease or it's an exotic remedy, and it's $50,000 for the year. Those generally aren't covered, right? Sometimes they are. In fact, the last two Medicare Part B increases were actually covering those types of really expensive drugs, those were actually the principal drivers of some of these Medicare Part B increases. But generally speaking, 
No. Generally, they may not cover those really expensive, you know, experimental, you know, trial, clinical trial-like type drugs. They're going to be FDA improved. Do keep in mind that the formulary on these plans is managed by CMS, not OPM. So there could be some differences, probably not in how if a drug is covered at all. The difference generally is in what tier it's covered. And the tier that it's covered sometimes has impact on your out-of-pocket costs. In order for these plans to be improved by OPM, they had to offer benefits that are as good or better. We've looked at the, the coverage. It's true. Generally, the, the co-pays, the co-insurance is going to be at least the same from the FEHB plan. In some cases, it is lower. And importantly, in a handful of those plans that we mentioned of the 17, they have added the $2,000 out-of-pocket max a year early. So if you have moderate to high prescription drug use and you're not in one of those plans, this could be a really amazing way for you to save some serious money next year by enrolling in one of those plans. Just going back to some of the changes specifically from the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm also curious, Kevin, if there are you know, sunset dates to some of those changes? Are these permanent things moving forward? Or is there going to be kind of an end date to some of those caps, for example? The one that I know of is the premium protection. I think that it's only for the first six years. So I think that sunsets, I think, in 2030. That may not actually impact FEHB enrollees that much because there is no additional premium. If you are below IRMA, which is the um, income-related extra amount you have to pay if your income is over a certain amount. Those amounts have risen for 2024. IRS, they've they've put it up to, or Social Security rather, they've put it up to 103000 for individuals, up to 206000 for couples. That's your adjusted gross income. It's a two-year look back. Uh, if you are Irma, if you're an Irma person, realize for Part D, it's only about $13 a month in the first tier. You may be getting a lot more value than $13 a month with this extra Part D coverage, but Irma is one of those things where it may be something that you don't want. The plans will give you an opportunity to disenroll if that's what you want. You have basically a 30-day window from when you get that letter to contact the plan and say, I don't want this Part D coverage. So it's IRMA. The only other case to consider is if you receive um, pharmaceutical support for purchasing a drug, like a, a discount coupon, you will no longer receive that discount coupon if you have Medicare Part D coverage. So if, if you're getting that type of support, that could be another reason why you may not want this Part D coverage. But check with the, the new Part D plan and see how they will cover the drug that you're getting support for. You may find out that uh, the, the Part D plan d- does just as good a job as that pharmaceutical support. Yes. So the same gestalt applies then. You really need to do some homework, even if you are an annuitant and just like federal employees still working, don't presume anything and just don't automatically roll over. Even though most people do, this is a really good year to examine it carefully, bringing your own kitchen drawer full of pills with you when you do it. Yeah. And it, there's a little bit of friction to that. You're going to have to go to the plan website, search on the plan formulary on the website to see how that plan's going to cover a drug. You should see that it will still be covered if it was covered by your FEHB plan, but you will want to know how they classified it on the tier system and then know what that out-of-pocket obligation will be. You should find that it's as good or better, but make sure you're double-checking that. 
And are there other resources that retirees should be looking at right now? At least from my perspective, a lot of this could be very complicated to look at and to understand, you know, where where should retirees start when they're trying to think about all of this? At GuideToHealthPlans.org, we publish our Guide to Health Plans where we take all of these factors into consideration to rank the plans on estimated yearly costs. And we find big-time savings for annuitants who actually look at our guide and consider their options. You know, there's one other way, Drew, for people to take advantage of Part D, and it's Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage plans have been around for a few years now, but they package original Medicare A and B with a Part D plan. There's even more options available in 2024. The way these work is there's some type of Part B reimbursement anywhere from 75 to 150 or more. In fact, Kaiser plans out um, in the Pacific Northwest in California, they'll go all the way up to 250. And that helps people who have to pay a Part B late enrollment penalty, or perhaps they have to pay IRMA. So you get some Part B money back. And then importantly, some of them have zero out-of-pocket health care costs. The only thing that you pay out-of-pocket is prescription drugs. And then some of these Medicare Advantage plans are giving you the $2,000 out-of-pocket max a year early. Aetna Advantage, next year, $2,000 out-of-pocket for prescription drugs. And that's really your only out-of-pocket health care costs. These have amazing savings to federal employees. When we did the numbers for 2024, if you're in Blue Cross Standard and switch to United Choice Primary, it's not available everywhere, but it's available in about half the states, you'll save over $8,000. And most of that is for sure savings because of how high the premiums are in Blue Cross Standard, both Part B and in the FEHB premium. Now, that's for a 70-year-old primary insured, self-plus one, who lives in the D.C. area with average health care expenses. So your savings may be different than that. But the Medicare Advantage plans have tremendous value. They're probably going to be one of the lowest-cost health plans for most people, but they may not be the right plan for everyone. If you're one of those high-income folks that's income above 103000 for individuals or 206000 for a, for a couple, you have to pay two IRMAs. you got to pay Part B IRMA and Part D IRMA. So that's an extra, even in the first tier, it's an extra about $70 on Part B. It's an extra 13 or so dollars on Part D. The financial value is now eroded, hasn't it? Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is provider choice. Sometimes, you know, the providers that you have access to may be less than the plan that you're coming from. The plans, the Medicare Advantage plans say that you can see any provider that accepts Medicare and the plan. So definitely check to see how your current providers will be covered, if they are covered, and also any future providers that you may want to see, things like Mayo Clinic down the road or MD Anderson or some of the other Cleveland Clinic, some of the other really famous healthcare systems. If those are important to you, maybe not now, but sometime in the future, check that Medicare Advantage provider directory to see how they'll be covered. Kevin Moss is a director at Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we discuss a big change that's coming to the Thrift Savings Plan next year. I'm Drew Friedman, and you're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. Welcome back to 
Red Life here on Federal News Network. The TSP's International, or iFund, will move to a new benchmark index next year. It'll expand the iFund and should improve its risk return profile. I got more from the TSP Board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. The board regularly does fund benchmark reviews about every five to seven years just to make sure that things haven't changed and that benchmarks are still appropriate for the statutory requirements and for our participants. And so this is something we've done, as far as I'm aware, the the length of the, the program. And we did another review this year and we hire an investment consultant and the investment consultant goes out and they look at the span of potential indexes or benchmarks, and then they start winnowing them out saying they're not appropriate for us, right? For other people, they may be fine. And so as they have in the past, they said that the benchmarks for the C, S, and the F funds were all good and shouldn't be changed. But for the I fund, we follow what's called MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australia, Asia, and Far East. And when we first started that back in 2002, it was a pretty good representation of the non-U.S. equity markets. But as emerging markets have developed and emerging countries have gotten bigger, EFA only now exposes us to about 55% of the world's equity market. And so we are moving, and I'm only going to say this full name once because it is longer than anything. We are going to be moving to the MSCI All Country World XUSA XChina XHong Kong Investable Market Index. And I have to say the acronym isn't much shorter. The acronym is MSCI ACWI IMI XUSA XChina XHong Kong Index. All of which is to say that that exposes us to about 90% of the world's equity market. It adds in Canada. It adds in small um, cap stocks for both emerging and developed countries. And it adds in emerging markets. But as you can tell from the title, X Hong Kong, X China, it doesn't include those two localities. And let's go into the reason for why those countries were excluded. I understand this is something that has been on the board's radar for quite some time now. So why was that decision made? I think our investment consultant summed it up very nicely. And they said that operational complexities has increased when you invest in emerging markets, given the range of events such as the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the U.S. banning any investment in Russia then we have banned investment in certain Chinese, we the U.S., not we the TSP, we the U.S. have banned investment in sensitive Chinese technology sectors. Certain Chinese companies have been delisted. So when you're in that kind of situation, that creates volatility and potentially performance return issues. And it also, to the extent that you have to disinvest quickly, you're going to most likely lose money because, of course, everyone else in America is disinvesting, too. And so the reason we're not going into Hong Kong and China is because of the operational complexities as the investment consultant outlined. 
And just to be clear, because I know there was some controversy initially early on with the transition of the iFund in Congress and the Trump administration, White House. So that did not have to do with the decision to exclude those countries. It was more just the market itself. It was the fiduciary decision that our, our board made after reviewing the consultant's report and reviewing our staff recommendation No, it was not a political decision. They made a fiduciary decision based on actual information. And other than the transition of the I-Fund, I understand that the board also had its latest participant satisfaction report come out. What were some of the notable trends that you saw this year? I want to give some background first. We do these annual surveys and they're run by Gallup as a contract to us. They are a snapshot in time. Then separately, our record keeper is getting um, participant feedback on a daily basis. If you do a transaction, if you take out a loan, you take out a withdrawal, you get a survey as to how satisfied you were, what issues you encountered. So the participant satisfaction survey is sort of looking at how participants felt macro-wise at this point almost a year ago. And then we're also getting the daily and they're both very useful. With that background, the most recent survey found that our participant satisfaction fell from 87 to 82%. You know, obviously we want our participants to be satisfied with our services, so we are taking that to heart. The other thing that I think was very interesting is that Gallup correlated TSP customer satisfaction with the market. And so When the market's doing better, TSP participants are more satisfied. When the market is not doing as well, participants are less satisfied. Now, that's not obviously the sole driver of participant satisfaction, but I certainly know that when I look at my balance and it's down, I'm like, "Eh." and, you know, you just sort of have an overall "Uh," moment. So what I'm trying to say, I think, is that the survey is a useful tool and we try to integrate all the data. And so, for example, Participants very much are driven by the security of TSP.gov. You know, again, we've got information about them. We've got information about their investments. They want us to be secure, and we absolutely want to make that happen. They want to have good information on TSP.gov. They want to be able to roll over money in and out of the TSP. And as we've talked about, I think, before, Our new record keepers starting in June of 2022 started offering a concierge service to help people roll money into the TSP. Also, a driver of satisfaction is the annual account statements. So with that in mind, it focuses where we're we're looking. And then again, we take into account what we're hearing on a daily basis. And so one of the things that's interesting is BRS participants responded the least, and they were least satisfied with the ability to take loans and withdrawals. And because there wasn't a huge response rate, it's hard to sort of draw a conclusion. So we're going to try and do focus groups with BRS members to sort of drill down and find out what they're really talking about. Because we have a suspicion that if you're 19, 20, 21, and you're contributing to the TSP, you're sort of equating it to a checking account or a savings account as opposed to retirement savings. And so you go to take out money and we're like, sorry, you can't. That's 
that could be a driver or it could be something entirely different, which is why we want to do the focus groups. And just to quickly clarify for our audience BRS participants, these are younger military members that are in a blended retirement system, and that's part of uh, the TSP. But Kim, other than conducting those focus groups for BRS participants, what other trends are on your radar and what else are you going to be taking a look at here? What we are looking at is I think one of the things that people suggested was instructions or information tutorials. And we do do that on TSP.gov. There are brief YouTube videos on how to take out a loan, that sort of thing. So I think we'll be looking at that. As you know, earlier, a couple months ago, we rolled out a loan tracker. So if you're taking out a loan, you can log into your TSP My Account and you can see, you know, has your spouse consented if you need a spousal consent? What's the status of your loan? And we're going to be working to do that with withdrawals. So those are the kind of things that we're trying to make improvements on. They're not huge, huge innovations, but they certainly respond to what's driving participant dissatisfaction. And Kim, I know that I've asked you this before, but you mentioned that you're planning to expand that tracker feature to withdrawals as well. Any timeline or any updates on when that will be coming out? I'm afraid I don't. It'll be in 2024, but I don't know when. And, you know, I think it's fair to say we've covered a lot of ground here with both the iFund changes as well as participant satisfaction. But there's also the latest participant report, and this covers things like mobile app downloads, loans, etc. Anything notable in the latest report there? Well, we are seeing a real increase in, in people taking out loans And that is attributable, I think, in part to the fact that people can now take out two general purpose loans. So that's part of it. But also the whole defined contribution industry is seeing an increase in loans. I don't know if that's because of the overall economic situation, but I can say that, you know, we're aware of it. We're watching it. There's not a lot we can do. It's people's money. And certainly if they meet the requirements, they can borrow it. But we're always concerned that people are hurting themselves by sort of taking their money out of the investment uh, mix that they've got it in. And the mobile app, I think that's just people for a long time wanted a mobile app. We have one. It's now past the million mark. We're also making improvements there. Like, again, they're not huge tweaks, but they are improvements to make it easier to use and to navigate. And Kim, I'll just ask one last question of you. I know that you really closely track uh, Congress and everything that's happening with legislation that might impact the TSP or the uh, Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Is there anything recently that you've seen or anything that you're still tracking at this point in the year? Yeah, there's one provision that we are tracking. There's a provision in the Financial Services General Government Appropriations Bill, the House uh, version, that would say no mutual fund in our mutual fund window could be there if it made decisions based on ESG criteria. Again, as we've discussed, there's about 4,600 mutual funds in the mutual fund window. They're Vanguard funds, they're Fidelity funds, they're Schwab funds. We have no control over them and we don't have the ability to police 4,600 mutual funds. And so that that is a serious problem and concern. And so we're just, as you know, the, appropri- <laughs> the appropriations process is a little murky right now. So trying to figure out 
what's going to happen with individual bills. That's what we're tracking to make sure that people are aware of the concerns there. Right. So we'll have to wait and see where that goes. But Kim, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Drew. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm reporter Drew Friedman, and this is Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life.